Harlem's famed Apollo Theater is celebrating its 75th anniversary. The Apollo launched and nurtured the careers of countless performers, including Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, and James Brown. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this morning's show, we're delving into the history of the Apollo and to the people who performed on its stage. Also this week, a look back at the bitter struggle over equal housing rights in the city of Yonkers. Glad you're with us for Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Monday marks the 75th anniversary of the landmark Apollo Theater in Harlem. Joining us now to talk about that venue's rich history is Ted Fox. Ted's the author of Showtime at the Apollo, the story of Harlem's world-famous theater. Good morning, Ted. Good morning. Ted, Harlem's Apollo Theater is known for its role in launching the careers of many black performers. But there was a time when the Apollo was a white-only venue, right? Many years ago, before it became the Apollo. Um, it began as Hurtigan Siemens burlesque in the teens, and that's when it was a theater that, yeah, actually didn't allow blacks, and 125th Street, and a good portion of what we now know as, you know, the great African-American community of Harlem was actually white. What prompted that change then in 1934? Well, it was a process. The sort of black migration, I guess if you want to call it, to to Harlem actually began further uptown with the opening of the subway lines uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And there had been such a tremendous real estate boom, sort of reminiscent of, of what's going on or what had been going on recently in New York and elsewhere. In anticipation of the opening of the subway lines, they'd actually overbuilt in the, you know, further uptown in Harlem in the 130s. And only because of that overbuilding did developers start to make those buildings and those apartments available to blacks. So the first blacks in Harlem actually began further up in that area. And then over the course of a couple of decades, the black population just sort of moved further and further south to now where, of course, it comprises all of what we now know of as Harlem. Let's talk about the Schiffmans, the Jewish family that once ran the Apollo. What was that family's interest in promoting black artists? Money, (laughs) just like any other promoter, uh, showbiz promoter. um, uh, Frank Schiffman started earlier in Harlem, first as someone who ran uh, theaters that, that showed films back in the silent era and uh, was a a showbiz professional promoter both in film and then um, at the Lafayette Theater and at the Harlem Opera House as a promoter of uh, great black musical and dance and comedy at some of the earlier great black theaters in Harlem. And uh, by the time he took over the Apollo in 1934, he was already well established as the preeminent promoter and producer of black entertainment in Harlem and uh you know was a very smart very shrewd showbiz operator throughout his career and uh, always 
in a way that I, I think is nearly unique, was able to both adapt to and anticipate and also influence basically every trend, every era of black popular culture through the years. And the artists wanted to perform there. It was where you wanted to go if you were an aspiring singer, musician, comedian. Yes, the Apollo was the pinnacle. The Apollo was was the top of the heap. This was the greatest black theater on the main thoroughfare of the greatest black community in the in the greatest city in, in America. This is where any black entertainer anywhere in America aspired to come to the Apollo, to play at the Apollo, to do his or her best at the Apollo. Going to the Apollo was an all-day experience, right, for the audience? Well, in the early days, it absolutely was. In the 30s, you could basically, it was general admission. You could get in during the Depression for as little as 10 cents, and you could stay all day. You've got to understand that for much of its existence, uh, in its golden era, the Apollo did up to five shows a day, every day, 30, 31 shows a week. So it's not like today where, you know, you'd go to the Beacon Theater or Carnegie Hall or whatever, and there would be one show. They would do five a day. It was almost like a daycare center in some cases for people because mothers would come with their kids. They'd pack a, a brown bag lunch, and they'd stay. Many of the artists, if not all of them, those that you spoke to in your book, called the Apollo home. Yeah, I really think that if there's a, a, a central theme to my book, Showtime at the Apollo, it would be that the Apollo was home especially up to and, and, and into the 60s, uh, African-American performers who worked around the country were frequently subjected to Jim Crow laws, to segregation, to discrimination, to you know driving through towns where there would perhaps be just one hotel where they could stay or, or one or two restaurants that they could eat in at minimum, a constant hassle and, and a degrading experience in, in, in a lot of ways. When they finally got to Harlem, to, again, the greatest black community in the greatest city in America, on the, you know, the main street of, of that community, and you're pulling up to the great showplace of, of Harlem, you know, you have to kind of imagine the feeling of uh, the relief, the, the joy of being somewhere where you could be accepted where you felt totally at ease, where there was no looking over your shoulder, there was no concern about, you know, frankly being hassled because of who you were. And that, in combination with the audience that became such a wonderful and integral part of the Apollo shows, because, again, as I said, the audience and the community really over the years accepted the Apollo and made the Apollo home as well. I mean, literally, in some cases, of uh, people you know, going and spending the whole day there, or spending day after day there. And as far as that audience, these folks made or broke the careers of these performers. That's generally true. They certainly could. I mean, a lot of times, of course... Uh, the Apollo, especially you know, after after its first few years, the Apollo really kind of became the establishment. I mean, this was the place where you really had to make it. Um, if you were a big star, you had to maintain it. So yes, the audience there, um, and I think sometimes it's been a bit mischaracterized as as just being a malicious crowd. It really wasn't a malicious crowd. It was 
a discerning and demanding audience. Of course, long before American Idol, the Apollo started its Wednesday night amateur night. That became, you know, one of the real signature attractions of the Apollo. And in fact, right to this day, uh, Wednesday night amateur night is still one of the really great shows, one of the great things at the Apollo. Over the years, so many great stars got their start at the amateur night at the Apollo from the early days with Pearl Bailey and uh, right through to Sarah Vaughan, uh, James Brown, uh, even Michael Jackson appeared on there. Uh, Lauren Hill more recently appeared on amateur night and I believe came in second. Your book includes so many stories of artists and their performances at the Apollo. Lionel Hampton brought that place down, huh? He was one of the greats. I guess in many ways he was sort of the, the James Brown of, of his era in terms of really owning the Apollo Theater. And many of the people who I, I've spoken with over the years from that era said that his shows were the most incendiary, the most exciting, uh, incredible shows at the Apollo, uh, particularly through the 1940s. His signature song, Flying Home, he'd leap up on top of his tom-tom and... Uh, there's stories of him actually leading his whole band off the stage, up the center aisle, out the back of the theater into 125th Street, marching around 125th Street, back into the theater, back up on stage. So you could just imagine what kind of pandemonium something like that would have caused. We saw Aretha Franklin perform this week at the inauguration in Washington, D.C., but she also performed many, many times at the Apollo, right? She didn't actually start her career at the Apollo. She was someone who had already been somewhat established since then, but certainly was one of the, you know, nervous up-and-coming stars who, who came in as a great picture in my book, Showtime at the Apollo, that shows a young, maybe 18-year-old Aretha Franklin in the Apollo's basement rehearsal hall with Charlie Atkins learning some dance stuff. She's in a leotard, it just looks absolutely you know, delightful and young and, and innocent and so forth. But, you know, obviously she was one of those people who, uh, you know, from Detroit who had heard about the Apollo for, for years and, and who was very eager to make a great first impression there. You mentioned that James Brown performed during the Wednesday night amateur night. What was he like during his Apollo days? The story that was that was told to me by a couple of people was that he actually showed up from with Georgia from from where he he was from and came into the Apollo you know really dressed kind of raggedy from, you know as basically he was a, he was a country boy and uh, they had to lend him proper clothes to get up on stage and he did get up on stage at amateur night and killed the crowd is it true that white performers would go to the Apollo to steal acts from the performers oh sure people have told me stories of the in the old days of, of Milton Berle, for instance, literally showing up with a stenographer and copying routines from, you know, the, the great early comedy, uh, black comedy acts like Dusty Fletcher or Stumpin' Stumpy. Same thing with white dancers who would come up and check out Buck and Bubbles or, or, or Bill Bojangles Robinson. And of course, musically, that happened all the time. Uh, the Apollo was the great place to do that. I mean, this is this is something that's always happened with you know the white, popular American performers in some cases ripping off or be at least being influenced by black 
popular culture. The Apollo thrived in the 1930s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, but it started to go downhill in the 70s. Did the civil rights movement play a role in the Apollo's troubles because now African Americans could perform all over the place? Well, yeah, it is kind of ironic that, you know, a theater that for, for so many decades sort of fought against and existed because of the racial intolerance and, and segregation and discrimination that was, uh, you know, in many cases de jour as well as de facto in America, uh, that once things started loosening up in the 60s, the fact is that, you know, many of the great soul stars who were so popular in the 60s didn't need the Apollo. It was common to have black performers at the uh, Lincoln Center, at Carnegie Hall, at basically any place that any other popular performer would perform. The Apollo was in many ways a casualty of that. The Apollo closed in the mid-70s. In 1983, it had cultural landmark status, and I'm sure that helped to reinvigorate it. It certainly did. I mean, the Apollo, as well as as much of New York, really hit the skids in the 70s. Percy Sutton, the former Manhattan borough president, got involved and spent a lot of his own money and time and, and effort and got the, the landmark designation and began to bring it back. That was a great thing in the 80s. The Apollo had a theme song. I may be wrong, but I think you're wonderful, right? There was always a band at the Apollo right into the 60s. And, you know, whether it was the headlining band who in the early days, if, if you went to see Fletcher Henderson or Chick Webb or whatever, the band would actually play for everybody on the bill. So they would play for the comedian, they'd play for the dancers, they'd play for whatever other singers might come on. They were essentially the house band for the week that they were there. And even into the R&B era, you'd have the Reuben Phillips band, who became the house band at the Apollo. There was always a band, and indeed that became the theme song uh, associated with the Apollo. I may be wrong, but I think you're wonderful. Ted Fox, the book is Showtime at the Apollo, the story of Harlem's world-famous theater. Thank you so much. Thank you. I may be wrong, but I think you're wonderful. I may be wrong, Showtime at the Apollo is published by Mill Road Enterprises. Among those with amazing memories of the Apollo's early days is renowned broadcaster Hal Jackson, who's a legend in his own right. Jackson was the first black radio announcer in network radio, the nation's first black sports play-by-play announcer, and the first African-American inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame. At 93 years old, Jackson's still on the air at WBLS-FM. His career was recently honored at the Apollo Theater, where he himself hosted hundreds of shows over the years. I had the honor to chat with Jackson earlier this week. All the big stars wanted me to tie up with them as the MC, where they would come into the Apollo. And I mean, we go way, way back. Billie Holiday, Sarah Vaughan, you know, I can't even tell you all the people. But it was such a big thrill. I used to um, do so many things up there. Not only shows, I used to take the radio show from there, too. Tell me about that radio show. What kind of show was it? (laughs) You know, um, the show was called The House That Jack Built. Now I'm Jack at a house. 
You're relaxing with Jackson in the house to Jackville. We'd go from city to city in this little house that we had, and everybody always felt they were traveling with us. And it was just a phenomenal thing because we were all connected. Everybody worked whenever they the cause came, we need to raise money, they were all there. And where did you do the show at the Apollo? Were you on stage? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'd come in, they'd make a setting up there and a big thing, and I would broadcast, and the people would be within the theater, and I'd bring some of them up to participate in the radio show. Would you believe lines around the block to get into the Apollo? And Bobby Schiffman used to kid me a lot. He owned the theater. He said, man, I don't know. I got to get you on stage so we can get some funds and all. So I said, no, the people see ahead of what I'm doing. They see what I'm saying, and they're believing that we're going to open up, and they're going to be a beautiful day someday. So, you know, and, and you look back now, and you said, isn't this wonderful? What was it like to emcee these big shows at the Apollo, to be in the presence of people like Billie Holiday and Ella Fitzgerald? Well, you know, when you think, I mean, I'm just realizing now how so important it was when Billie would come in and Billie would say to me, no, she was late for one show I was doing. And I said, where have you been? I'm sorry, you're going to fuss with me. I said, no, you're going to go out there, you're going to kill them. And then, and she did. And then it was Ella, then the Duke, Duke Ellington, and Count Basie. What was the most memorable performance that you witnessed at the Apollo? Oh, oh my goodness, I hate, oh, oh. See, it's, it's so hard, because I can think of so many different things that whoever was there, you know, would do it. Ray Charles. You know, and he used to kid around about being blind and, hey, Hal Jackson, I see you over there. Blah, blah, blah. But I'm talking about Dizzy Gillespie. I'm talking about, just name them. Everybody came to be a part of those shows at the Apollo, knowing that the money was going to the FCLC to fight discrimination. How significant is that institution, the Apollo Theater in Harlem, to that community? It is a permanent thing. The thing that I like about it is it's not limited to one area. Everybody in Harlem and Brooklyn claims the Apollo is their state. The reason is you have religious shows, you have star shows, you have everything. No one was eliminated. I mean, they always found the attraction for whatever they liked at the theater. So, like you were saying, they all embraced it. They all felt a part of the Apollo Theater. It was 75 years ago this month that African Americans were finally allowed into the Apollo. That's right. And that's something I never forget. And, you know, God says you forgive and forget. But they weren't allowed in there because, and it wasn't the owner, Bobby Schiffman, no. It was the white, masterful, uh, people, the political, that kept, didn't want it, did not want it, but we, we overcome. Why didn't they want it, especially in a neighborhood that was predominantly black? I think it was the ego idea that too many black people would build up too much of a name. They always feared, that is the biggest and all, they always feared 
of black get people feeling more important and taking over. Who were buying the tickets during those early shows when black performers first started to perform at the Apollo? Was it a black audience or was it a mixed audience? No, it was a black audience. I think the white people had to be comforted and assured that if they came to Harlem or if they were in Harlem, they'd be safe. Everybody loved them. So I went out of my way on the radio every day to say, don't forget, all people are welcome to the Apollo. All we want to do is pack the theater and keep the shows going, not use a race for thing. And I need your cooperation. If you see anybody getting out of line, Put them in line. So then eventually things changed. There yeah. were white audiences at the Apollo watching black performers. That's right. Well, you know what? I was trying to think of uh, some of the people, Woody Herman and, oh, so many of the others. Um, uh, God, I can't even think of all the performers, the white performers that drew black people. Tony Bennett, oh, they love him. You know what I mean? Young rascals, uh, it was great. It was a great feeling. So that theater is a uniter, brings people together. That's right. Breaks down the racial divide. Absolutely. And that's what the whole thing is. When you bring people together, they open up more. And they convince some of those who are bigoted inside, that's the wrong road, come over here with us. We are all one people. We are all together. And little by little, you know, the message got through. Beautiful, beautiful. And the reaction, you have never seen anything like it till you see the Apollo with its mixed crowd, everybody happy, and for one thing, thank God. Hal Jackson, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Legendary broadcaster Hal Jackson talking about his experiences with the Apollo now, Theater. Baby, when you sigh, I want to sigh with you. When you cry, I want to cry some too. Now, ain't that love? Oh, ain't that love that I feel in my heart? You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Borarki. In the late 1980s, the question of race ripped apart the city of Yonkers as lawmakers and residents resisted desegregation policies to build low-income housing units in previously white parts of town. Director Bill Cavanaugh documented the events in his film Brick by Brick, A Civil Rights Story. The film is being screened this afternoon at the Riverfront Public Library in Yonkers. Mary Wilson sat down with Kavanaugh to talk about his documentary. If I could convince you to see Brick by Brick, it would be by simply saying it's a documentary that follows three families over the course of time in their own city's crucible over race, housing, and justice. And that's really what it's about, following desegregation in one city, not just through the eyes of the political and legal actors, but through the eyes of of three families who come from very different places, but who all really are looking for the same things, for home, for a good place for their family, and for opportunity. Low-income housing in Yonkers was confined to the southwest section of town in the Schlobaum housing complex. In this scene, Adrian, a public housing resident, walks around the dismal Schlobaum apartment buildings. They call it the hole, because that's what it looks like. You have to drive down into Schlobaum. When you look at Schlobaum. It's about 1,400 families that are in kind of a concrete hole. It's on the edge of a hill, and the project itself has been kind of borne out below the street 
There's a concrete wall that goes down from its high point, probably about 30, 40 feet, and creates a level space that's just all housing development and then fields around it. And so it's almost like it's sort of carved out away from the rest of the city. And around it were about 7,000 units of public housing in about a one-square-mile area. So that, that whole area of southwest Yonkers, which was really the only hospitable area for African Americans and Latinos, was deeply, deeply segregated. And just a lot of poor people sort of dumped into this this spot without a lot of city services. Why do you think there was still such vehement resistance to desegregation in such a recent time period? In America, and especially in the North, you have a history that really protects a lot of uh, white people from the reality of what segregation and discrimination means. You know, we don't have the kind of, you know, uh, back-of-the-bus segregation that there was down south before the civil rights movement. But you do have housing laws. I mean, housing policy ever since the 1930s has encouraged and, in fact, for a while, enforced segregation. And a lot of decisions that are made on sort of a an institutional level, people, especially white people, don't notice it. And I think a lot of black people don't notice it either because the implications are sort of subtle. Like if all of your public housing that houses largely people of color gets dumped into a small area of your city and all of the city services are really diminished in that area because those people don't have much political power, then there's sort of a sense on the part of people living elsewhere in a city, well, those people don't care about their property or there's some sort of a difference and they see the color difference. It's as clear as day, but they don't understand the implications. So there's I don't want to cast stones at at people who oppose programs that are integrative, but I think when people resist them, they're not really thinking clearly about why segregation still exists in a country that supposedly is colorblind. We've just elected our first black president, yet we still have very deep color lines in our residential communities and in our educational system, too, as a result. There are people who are on one side of this issue at the beginning of the film, and by the end of the documentary, they've had change of heart. A politician calls up his political adversary and says, I'm sorry. Somebody else becomes a volunteer to serve the very people she was trying to keep out of her neighborhood. What did you see in their eyes that, that made them have such a do such a 180, have such a change of heart? Well, you know, you ask whether racism, whether a lack of understanding is some kind of deep, sinister thing in people's hearts. And I think hopefully the film shows how much people are alike and how much when we get to know each other better, that becomes apparent. You wrote two years ago in the Huffington Post, April 2007, you wrote, segregation is not becoming gradually extinct. No, unfortunately, segregation is actually worse in the last census than it was 100 years ago in a lot of places in the country. And we don't have segregation by law, but we do have institutional decisions that have increased the color lines in our residential communities. We obviously all know that a lot of a lot of African Americans have have broken through the color line in education and in residential communities, but we still have now kind of an economic and racial segregation that, in reality, and if you look at our major cities, and New York is not not exempt. New York is, I think, one of the top ten most segregated cities in America in metropolitan communities when you include the suburbs, and you find that a lot of the reasons for that go back into zoning. They go back into the white flight from the cities during the 60s and 70s and entrenched communities that resist, you know, the kinds of policies that would just open up communities. And now I think we have an opportunity with our housing situation in shambles in this country to really rethink how we orient housing policy so that 
everyone has an opportunity to live in a more integrated community. Since making Brick by Brick, when you drive through a new city or you're traveling in a new part of the country, do disparities in housing stick out to you more? Yeah, it's really impossible not to see the color lines, the economic lines in all of our major cities when you travel around, as I have during the last couple of years taking the film here and there. You notice very distinctly how there's a you know, kind of a like an unwritten rule when you see a Martin Luther King Boulevard in town, you're going to see the sort of difference in housing and, and a difference in city services in a lot of cities. You know, we're getting past it, but we have a lot of work left to do. And it's it's still quite visible as you travel about the country. I can't help noticing that you don't employ a lot of the same euphemisms that you hear when people talk about race. You're pretty frank. Is that something you learned through making this film? I learned a lot making this film. I mean, I, I was really pretty naive about race in America when I started making this film. And I really thought that some of the white liberals in Yonkers had a good beat on trying to, you know, help the city get past this issue by complying with the court order. But I really got to see through making Brick by Brick how the racial dynamics of power in this country, you know, have been really kind of calcified over time. I'm really hopeful now that you see an Obama administration, that the dynamics of political power and the euphemisms about race and the unwritten assumptions that black people will be used for political purposes, but essentially ignored in between elections, that those things are going to change. I learned a lot making the film. And uh, if it makes me sound more frank about race, I, um, I guess I'm glad about that. Bill Cavanaugh is the director of the documentary Brick by Brick, a civil rights story. He spoke with WFUV's Mary Wilson. A screening of the film takes place this afternoon at 2 at the Riverfront Public Library in Yonkers. For more information, check out brickbybrick.com. That's brick-by-brick.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Michal Neria. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend. 